Udi. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, I'm Lisa Francesca Nand and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast, proudly sponsored by WeCure, the leading health tourism provider in the UK. WeCure connects people who are after dental treatments, aesthetic procedures and social and mental well-being with internationally accredited medical institutions in Turkey. And we have an exclusive offer for you. Head to wecure.co.uk slash big travel podcast to find out how, if you book a treatment, you can take a friend with you to Turkey completely free. Sounds good. Weekyore turns your treatment into a relaxing holiday. That website again, weekyore.co.uk slash big travel podcast. And on to today's brilliant episode. Lloyd Grossman, entrepreneur, author and broadcaster is well known for presenting MasterChef through the keyhole and much more. His lifelong passion for history and the arts has led to leading roles in cultural institutions from English Heritage to the Arts Society, the Royal Parks and the Royal Historical Society and several impeccably researched books. Lloyd and I on this episode talk food, as you'd expect from the man behind that famous source, growing up in a US seaside haven, hippie days in late 1960s New York, playing with Jethro Tull and how an elephant in Rome led to his new book, about one of Europe's greatest artists. Because your new book sounds amazing and also very, very travel related. Of course, a lot of your life is travel, food and culture and they all go hand in hand as far as I'm concerned. And your book... Is an elephant, an elephant in Rome, Bernini, the Pope, and the making of an eternal city. Tell us about that, first of all. Well, it was really written to satisfy my own curiosity. I love Italy. I spend a lot of time there. I love Rome, particularly. You know, one of the most fascinating cities in the world. And when I first came across this rather bizarre statue of an elephant in the middle of a, a square in Rome, my initial thought was, you know, after appreciating the humor of it, and the beauty of it, the bizarreness of it, I just thought, what the heck is it doing here? Why? Why? Because I am a very, um, I have a very strong sense of curiosity. And... I'm always asking why, you know, if I don't know, if I don't know the answer to something, I kind of want to find out what it is. So um, I thought, gosh, what is this? Why is this here? And then I realized it was by Bernini. 
And Bernini is someone who, whilst, you know, hardly a, a popular figure in his lifetime, and he was an exact contemporary of people like Rembrandt and Rubens and Velasquez, all immensely famous. In his lifetime, he was the most famous artist in Europe. And I suddenly thought, well, why is the most, why did the most famous artist in Europe create a statue of an elephant to put in a square in Rome? And that began me on the trail of what turned out to be a very fascinating story and ultimately turned into this book. You, your research involved in that must have been incredibly in-depth. How did you go about that? There was a, <laughs> uh, a lot of time. It was a much more complicated story than I expected. The research was more challenging because I'm kind of, my, my, most of my historical research is kind of 18th century. And suddenly to go back 100 years to the 17th century, where I had to discover a whole range of new sources and different libraries, archives, et cetera, et cetera, was was a big a big learning curve for me, but I like that because I I I love doing things, or at least beginning to do things for which I'm just barely qualified. You know, I kind of like learning. I always want to be learning something, and suddenly I thought, you know, something I really I'm going to learn so much more about Rome through writing this book, and because I learn more, I'm going to enjoy Rome more. And so there's kind of, to me, there's always this virtuous circle that the, the more you know about a place that you visit, the more you enjoy it. And um, this took me really deep into the of 17th century Rome, which was such an incredibly important time for creating the Rome that we know and love at the moment. Rome is such a beautiful place. And I remember it being oh. very... Roman. I know that sounds obvious, but there's old buildings everywhere. But also what I love about it most is the nuns that are just on the street. I, I remember in Rome having, you know, I saw a nun eating an ice cream and none on a motorbike. Five nuns, you know, gathered around a street vendor, just nuns everywhere doing ridiculous things. They're not ridiculous. They're everyday things. But you don't see so many nuns in other countries doing such nunny things. Um, what's the most Roman thing? What's the most Roman thing that has ever happened? to you in Rome? What's your most Roman anecdote, the most Romy thing? Well, I mean, I love, for example, I, you know, I love just around the corner from the Piazza della Minerva, where the elephant is, is a shop where I often go to buy socks, because <laughs> they do these socks in very beautiful colours, and they're the Pope's tailors. They make the Pope's clothes. And so you can go in there and buy, you know, Archbishop's socks or Monsignor's socks. And, and they're these incredible ecclesiastical outfitters who've been there for a long time. And to me, that's a very Roman thing, this sort of continuity, the history. When you're in Rome, history seems to be part of the present and not just part of the past if that makes any sense. Absolutely um, makes sense. And it's such a sort of fantastic jumble because within the space of about, I don't know, 100 yards or something in Rome, you can go from ancient Rome to modern Rome to the Middle Ages to the 19th century to Baroque Rome. You know, it's all mixed up. It's, it's the most 
incredible kind of tossed salad of a of a historical city. You know, the sheer beauty of it. See, it's got all the stuff I love. It's got great beauty, great history, incredibly good food, fabulous ice cream. I'm totally hooked on ice cream. And, you know, to me, Rome is just like one of the ultimate places. It's it's just so inspiring to be there. You feel so alive when you're there. That's an amazing thing. And you come back with incredibly tailored ecclesiastical socks. There's not many people that have ecclesiastical socks. Yeah, you get great socks as well. The um, the statue, so the elephant statue is the inspiration for this journey you then went on. Tell me about the breastfeeding wolf statue, because there's the, um, I mean, my, my first degree is in history of design, so theoretically I should know this, and I'm a travel journalist. I've forgotten the story, but I know that in... Rome is it the region yeah. you have the you have a wolf and you have two little men yeah. tiny little men breastfeeding the wolf now that to me is the most confusing yeah. statue I've ever seen in my life remind me what's going on there oh that's about the infants uh, Romulus and Remus who were abandoned in a cave they were saved by a wolf And the wolf cave, if I get this correct, I know that someone's going to complain about this and say, no, you have no idea what you're talking about. I believe the wolf cave is called the Lupercalia in Latin. And that is the mythical foundation place of Rome. Because, of course, Romulus was the infant who survived to become the founder of Rome after whom the city is named. So that's why the, you know, the wolf, the mother wolf breastfeeding the two infants, it, it represents the foundation of, 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 of Rome. And uh, you see that everywhere in Rome, along with, of course, the famous sort of logo or brand of Rome, which is that SPQR, which is the acronym for the Latin of the Senate and People of Rome. So you see SPQR everywhere and you see the wolves everywhere. And the wolves were very confusing the first time I went to Rome. The breastfeeding baby is <laughs> jumping up to the wolves' teats. It's, it is rather confusing. Yeah. What I, what I love about, about you and this conversation we're having already is already you're dropping in Latin and you're incredibly well read. A lot of people know you for the very successful commercial television career you've had and of course your culinary skills and your products and sources that go with that but also just some of your accomplishments you know president of the art society british the british institute of florence um the uh a board member of the english of english heritage the museums and galleries commission the royal commission of the historical monuments of england chairman of the church's conservation trust and the royal drawing school and you've actually played at Glastonbury several times. I mean, this is a, a very broad, encompassing selection of talents you've got. I don't, well, know, I don't know where to start with those. It's, it's kind of what you do when you don't have a career. Look, I don't have a job. Yeah. <laughs> I have a... Uh, I, I, I have a portfolio. I'm very lucky to, to uh, have a portfolio. And I'm very lucky to do stuff that I love doing. Now, that is, I don't think that's been a very good career move because I have no career. But, you know, I get to do a lot of really fabulous stuff. And um, I was um, 
I was brought up in a family that had a very, very strong kind of public service ethos. So I was always told how, how important it was, you know, from childhood, how important it was to do, to do stuff that would benefit the, the public, which I believe very strong, strongly in. And, you know, so I'm fortunate to be able to work for a lot of organizations that I think do very good stuff for people. And I also have fun doing it. And a lot of the organization you know, you, you're working for are, are very British and you've been in the UK, yeah. what, over 30 years now? Dare I say I have been <laughs> in the UK since 1974. The year I was born. There you go. It's not often that I, oh, get, I get to say the that. Year, uh, yeah, I'm already 46 what, almost. Um, so, uh, well, so, yeah, 46 years. I've been there. I've been there since September. I moved to the UK. I mean, I didn't intend to move. I arrived in the UK on September the... 17th 1974 going back to your childhood and i know a lot of people will be bursting to get this question answered your accent you're from Uh, you're from boston which is a beautiful beautiful city it's one of my favorite cities in the u.s you can walk everywhere but tell us about tell us about your life in boston growing up well i was born in boston but probably i think when i was about four or five months old we moved up the coast to a very beautiful um, yachting sailing town called Marblehead, which some people say is the most beautiful town in New England. I think it certainly is one of the most beautiful towns in America. I grew up there. I grew up in coastal Massachusetts and spending the summers further up the coast in Maine. So um, I had a very, very sort of, straight i suppose in some ways very typical small town stroke rural stroke seaside new england upbringing and was fortunate that boston which was the nearest big city was just a fascinating place both as a child and and as a teenager because it had amazing culture you know, great. The Museum of Fine Arts in Boston is one of the greatest in the world. And also, most importantly, when I was a teenager and a young adult, Boston had a very, very, very lively music scene, very big music scene. And that's what I was totally involved in, much to the much to the detriment of my undergraduate career and my indeed my school career. I was really only cared about music at that stage. And, uh, you know, which is great because it's been a lifelong passion. Uh, Let's explore that a little bit. So you've played Glastonbury. I had no idea you've played Glastonbury several times and you're you're a big guitarist. Yes, my band and I have played Glastonbury eight times. And um, and we played a lot of other, you know, we've played uh, a Cornbury Festival. We've played the Rebellion Festival, both in Germany and in the UK. Uh, yeah, we've done quite a lot of festivals and quite a lot of, of gigs. And um, it's very gratifying after all these years to still be to still be doing that. You know, I spent I misspent a lot of my teenage years and young adult years either writing about music or playing music, which, uh, you know, was, was fabulous. And, 
And then recently, I say recently, but I say actually for the past five years, I've played three concerts every Christmas with Jethro Tull, which has been a fabulous thing because I was a great I was a great Tull fan as a teenager. And actually to play with them now is quite a bizarre you know, every time I do it I still think, nah, this is not this actually is not happening, is it? And uh we do um we do three concerts every year at Christmas time to um, raise money for British cathedrals. Um, and um, it's not what I thought Jeff Sotel would be doing. I love the, I love the juxtaposition of those two things. It's, yep. You know, it sort of follows yep. what you've been doing with your, you know, with your your research, yeah. your in, the intellectual side, the art side, the, the supporting the churches and the cathedral side, and you're playing with Jeff Sotel. Love it. Yeah. It's great. I mean, it's it's so much fun. So music, you, you know, thanks to, well, I, both my parents, uh, particularly my father, both my parents were very good musicians and music lovers. So we always had music in the house and musical instruments in the house and so on. Um, rather sadly, I've never been very good, but I'm very enthusiastic. <laughs> I'm still, I mean... I'm, I'm still, having played guitar since I was 13 years old, I am only just now realizing the difference between the major and the minor pentatonic scale. So I'm um, a rather slow learner. Oh, well, I've got that down already. You know, that's my major and minor <laughs> pento, whatever, you know, that's, uh, yeah, most of us have that down. I'm, a, I'm frankly, you should, I think you should, be, you should be ashamed of yourself. So uh, growing up in Boston, I read that you... Um, you travelled to New York a lot as a child, and I also read a story about you travelling first class. Do you come from quite a well-to-do background? Um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, and, nothing to be ashamed um, of. It's all right. <laughs> I mean, my I, my parents were very um, very low key, and I mean, part of that is the New England thing of really, you know, hating. Uh, any sort of showing off and the other thing is that's just the the way that they they were my parents were very understated um and so yeah we lived we lived very well but we didn't really live very luxuriously i would say let's put, let's put it that way tell us about those childhood trips to new york oh they were fabulous i mean it, it was in the days i mean i i started i am told I was told by my parents that I did my first plane trip at three months old with my mother carrying me in a Moses basket. And on um, that was a flight to New York on a DC-3, you know, Dakota, one of those planes that you see in World War II movies. But mostly, and we used to go to New York quite often you know, maybe about, I don't know, I suppose about four or five times a year, um, usually usually going by train. There was a wonderful old-fashioned train called the Yankee Clipper, you know, in the days when trains had names. And the Yankee Clipper was this rather fabulous train, like you'd see in a Humphrey Bogart film, that went from Boston to, to New York. And um, the excitement of arriving in Grand Central Station 
uh, as a small child is just indescribable. You know, the greatest Grand Central, you know, probably the greatest railway station in the world. And just stepping into that vast hole. And because New York is so totally different from Boston in terms of, you know, just physicality and the scale and everything and the speed, it was, I mean, maybe that's what gave me my taste for travel, I suppose. The difference, difference, difference is really important for me. You know, I don't, I want to see people and meet people and interact with people who have different ideas and different backgrounds and different, a different point of view. And I want to see what their lives are like. I want to see what their, their towns and cities and, and countries are like. And really, you know, you could not get to cities that are more different than Boston and New York. So that was my first, you know, I always, ever since then, I've always felt that New York is this really exotic place. <laughs> and also it had an edge, didn't it? It has an edge, had yeah. an edge years ago that it doesn't actually, well, it has much of a less of an edge now. But I remember yeah. it, I remember it as a child before I even went there, seeing New York as like a bit of a no-go area, you know, back in the, uh, in the 80s, you know, it, it definitely had that vibe. In the 80s. Yeah, in the the 80s, I think, was quite a rough time in New York, you know, the the, sort of the late 70s and 80s. And then in the um, in the sort of late 60s, beginning of the late 60s, I would spend most um, probably every other weekend in New York, really mostly hanging out at places like Max's Kansas City and CBGB and the Chelsea Hotel to see people like the Velvet Underground and, you know, all the, all these crazy sort of New York institutions. I, I was very, very into that, whatever that under, I guess it was the kind of underground rock scene in New York. I really enjoyed it. I was slightly bewildered by it because it, uh, I just never come across anything like it before. What did you look like? What were you wearing at the time? I need to describe the scene. Well, it's it's hard to believe, but uh, I had very long, below shoulder length hair, and um, wore almost entirely tie dyed clothes. Um, I, I th- that was kind of my attempt at sort of a hippie look, but but I was very <laughs> but. Not paradoxically, I suppose. I was very straight, though. That was the funny thing, you know? So I was kind of, uh, I could have been, you know, I looked like a bit like a roadie for the Grateful Dead, but inside I was a sort of nerdy historian. (laughs) So you moved to the UK and you've really embraced the culture, I was going to say here, but I'm actually in Spain recording this, the UK, the British culture. <laughs> um, I love what you said about difference being very important to you. But do you feel, do you still feel different even after over 40 years in the UK? Does, do things yeah. still feel different there for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have the benefit of feeling as if I'm perpetually on holiday, visiting this kind of amazing country. And... Um, it's. I think. I. I think that because. Because I. I still feel. As someone who's come to the UK by choice. I feel that. Um, 
it's such an extraordinary country. It's such a wonderful country. And, and I think sometimes that, that people who were born and grew up in Britain don't quite realize what an exceptional country it is. And, and of course, because the, the British make this, um, you know, this big thing about being reticent and, you know, we, we don't brag about anything. Um, I think quite often British people are not, as enthusiastic about their, I, I'm almost kind of afraid to be too enthusiastic about their country, and you know the the I, I think love of the love of the place where you live is is, is very important, um, especially when it's such an exceptional place. So I wish that um, many British people would be more enthusiastic and excited about where they live, and the, I mean a lot of that we could. You know, we, we, it's very important, I think, to foster a, a greater sense of pride in, in local places. And, I mean, I love, I love London, which is, you know, the greatest city in the world. But too often it overshadows so many other places in Britain. And, you know, I'd really, really like to see more emphasis on all the great stuff that's all around the UK because it's it's just a fabulous fabulous country. I I read somewhere that you were uh, you were involved in the campaign and uh, implementing the uh, campaign, I guess, of the um, when Europe when Liverpool was the European capital of culture was it in two thousand and eight? And I read about your you, love for Liverpool. Now um, my mum comes from uh, just outside Liverpool, from the Wirral. I have a huge love of, uh, of Liverpool. I think anyone that has a connection to the city and anyone who's a music fan as well, and of course uh, it has a huge cultural history as well. So all of those things tied up must make it quite a, an, a, an attraction for you. Yeah, and I mean, I, I remember I first visited Liverpool in 19, I think 1979 or 80. And I remember, you know, so some, you know, typically some friends in London said to me, oh, what are you doing for the weekend? I said, I'm going to Liverpool. And there was this stunned silence. And then someone said, why? And... You know, it was kind of typical of the fact that, you know, people people often think that, oh, outside of London, there's not a city worth visiting. I mean, I have to say, Liverpool, I mean, I've, I've, I'm a great booster of, of, of Britain's regional cities, not just Liverpool, because I've spent, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Leeds and Manchester and so on. Um, you know, Liverpool's remarkable. It's, it's a thrilling city. It's and the sense of humor there, the passion. Um, in many ways, there are a lot of things that remind me of Boston in Liverpool. You know, the fact that it's a port city, the fact that it's a city that's obsessed with sport, and you know, the Liverpool love of football is only equaled in intensity by a Bostonian's love of the Boston Red Sox. And, uh, you know, the, the, I, I mean, it, it's such an incredible city. And as I say, it's one of many, many, many incredible cities in the UK. Your food and travel, food has obviously always been very important to you, but food and travel and culture to me and music, actually, which I will bring, uh, which reminds me of my, I can't wait to ask you my last question. Not that I want to rush this up, but because um, I know you're such a music fan, but food and culture are, are great passions of yours. Where, where in the world have you had the best 
meal and why? Well, the truth, the truth, it, there's a, um, there was an American novelist called Joseph Heller who wrote Catch-22. And he had this incredible description of himself, which uh, I, I share. He said that he was perpetually hungry from the neck up. And, you know, I am like that. I'm, so, you know, the best food I've ever had is, for me, always the one I'm about to have. You know, I'm always looking forward to, you know, the next the next breakfast, lunch, or dinner I'm about to have is going to be the best one I've ever had in my life. And I find that, you know, one, one of the great things about travel, of course, you know, as you, as you well know, is, is the food. And, and one of the reasons, I think, is the fact that the, the most intense experience of another culture you can almost ever have is eating the same food that they eat. Because that's, so, you know, what could be more visceral? Well, we couldn't discuss it in a podcast. But, you know, the just eating the same food as the, as, as the people you're visiting is the total immersion in some place. And I never feel like, I mean, one of the first things I do when I, I always try to arrive somewhere in time for lunch. And I never really feel that I've actually arrived until I'm sitting in a restaurant having, <laughs> having lunch. <laughs> and then I think, yeah, now I'm, I'm hooked in. You know, I, I, I'm beginning to get it. So, um, you know, I was, but amongst the, great, the greatest food destinations, you know, inevitably, inevitably Italy, France, of course, I've had some incredible food in Spain and not necessarily the sort of super advanced molecular cuisine stuff, but a lot of the rustic food um, I, I find absolutely remarkable. And, and, the, and the quality of the basic foodstuffs in, in Spain is superb. Um, but all over Europe, you know, there's, there's always something thrilling and exciting. I, I, I was very fortunate. I was in Stockholm for New Year's, and gosh, Swedish food is very good. <laughs> There's no question about that. So, um, you know, basically, wherever I'm about to go and whatever I'm about to eat is going to be the best, the best, and what I'm most looking forward to. You talk about restaurants, um, but on your travels, have you ever, and actually, it's something that I find really awkward, but I do say yes to because, you know, when, you know, you meet a local person and, you know, they say, well, come to my house for dinner and you, you know, ended up and, you know, I find it incredibly awkward. Maybe it's a, a British thing. We're not as confident as, say, the Americans to just go along, okay, hey, yeah, great, I'll come along and, you know, chat. Like, I pretend I am, but, and I will go through the motions and anyone else looking at me and think, oh, she's really comfortable here. But inside, I'm like, I'm dying. I'm I'm so embarrassed right now. Have you ever had those experiences when you travel, when you get invited to go, you know, around someone's house and sit at the table and go through that awkward silence oh, situation? Look, there's nothing nicer than sitting down to lunch or dinner with your friends or family. I, I, I sometimes find being sort of parachuted into a domestic situation of someone else's a little bit not what I'm looking for. <laughs> 
put it that way. You're chair of the Royal Parks, and I've just seen you've been reappointed again for the next four years. Now, I think people yes. from other countries will find our Royal Parks fascinating. I find our Royal Parks fascinating. I live, I say I lived, up until last week, I lived for many, many years right next to Greenwich Park, which is one of my oh. favourite parks in the world. But tell for people who don't know, tell us about the Royal Parks. Well, the Royal Parks are, I think most people would say, and I would certainly say that the, the Royal Parks are the greatest collection of urban parks in the world. And they really, they stretch all across, all across London from Richmond and Bushy down in the southwest to Greenwich in the east. And they include some of London's most important landscapes. You know, if you think about Hyde Park, Kensington Gardens, Regent's Park, St. James's Park, the Green Park, you know, it's, it's amazing. Greenwich Park is the oldest enclosed park in Europe. Greenwich Park was set up in 1433 for Henry V's little brother. And the royal parks were originally mostly um, hunting grounds for the royal family and were eventually transformed into public parks and then uh, then turned over to the public for the public amusement and education and, and well-being. So one of the things that really distinguishes London is having this huge network of parks. I mean, 5,000 acres of parks open to everyone all the time, free, inspiring, and thrilling. And so, you know, it's the greatest privilege I've ever had to be part of the history of the Royal Parks. And I, th I think that they're especially important now because everywhere you look, space is increasingly being sort of privatized or monetarized. And to have free space, free open space where everyone is equal is incredibly important. You know, that that is something that is worth dying in a ditch for. So it's, you know, incredibly important that people rural parks um, at the centre of London life uh, because the, the well-being and the joy that it produces from 77 million visitors a year is pretty extraordinary. Chaffle has always been, just seems just such an incredible passion for you. But what do you think is the best thing about travel? I, I think it goes back to that thing of difference about experiencing something different. You know, that's, that, that's why sometimes one of the really bad effects of globalization is that sometimes, you know, you're, you're, you see the same sort of shops, et cetera, et cetera, the same advertising, the same, you know, and, and you don't, I don't travel to, to do the same thing. I travel to do the different thing. And um, what you really prize, I think what I really prize, are the things that are very particular to a specific place. And it's getting that, it's, it's experiencing life in a way that's different from your daily life. That is what, to, to me, you know, that, that's the law to me. And seeing, you know, and also seeing beautiful things, you know, beautiful buildings or beautiful landscapes, uh, 
beautiful performances. So I will ask you my last question. I've been really looking forward to asking about this because I know. Um, oh, no. No, oh, no. Oh, hang on. No, hang on. Before I ask you my last question, which is always yeah. about music, I have a question that an 11-year-old inspired me to ask my ne- next guest the other day over a conversation. And 11-year-old yeah. Chloe asked me, and I never had the yeah. chance to answer, actually, but she said, what have you never spoken about? And I thought, what a wonderful question, and I'm going to ask my next guest, and you happen to be my next guest. What have you never that, spoken about? What have I never spoken about? about gosh there are quite a lot of things that i've never spoken about i've never really discussed my career as a skier (laughs) that is perfect tell me about your career as a skier well it just i mean it's just i just wasn't very good (laughs) that's why i've never spoken about it well did you did you ski were you a skier or you just never sat on the stood on them at all yeah, I, I spent some time. Yeah, I enjoy skiing, but I was just really never very good at it. I mean, really, I did it to um, keep my children company. Because, of course, being learning to ski when young, um, they were really good and and quite sort of fearless. And, um, you know, I, I had always skied cross-country. I was never a sort of downhill skier, but I became a downhill skier in order to keep my children company. Of course, they were about a million billion times better than I was. <laughs> and uh, I, I, so I, never, I never really became a ski bum or, you know, a glamorous ski instructor or anything like that. But I did like the... Um, I always enjoyed having a roshti on the slopes and one of those sort of ski. I I think I preferred everything about skiing other than skiing itself. <laughs> I'm totally with you. For me, it's all about the uh, the food and the the apres the ski, mountain. the mountains, the view. Yeah. Put me on those slippy yeah. things going down the mountain. It's like, why on earth would you want to do that when you can sit in this beautiful restaurant yep. with the hot chocolate and rum and this fabulous view, you know? Yeah. And you sort of think, so you have this fabulous lunch and then you think, oh, now my afternoon is ruined because I've got to throw myself down the side of a mountain in order to get back to the hotel. <laughs> Makes exactly the same no sense to me at all. Right, I'm going to uh, I'm going to ask you my last question. My last question is always about music, um, because right. music and travel to me and many people a bit like food and travel. Music and travel go hand in hand. So I'm going to cho- ask you to choose one song. If you had to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel, what is that song and what's the story? It would probably, you know, something, the problem is I can't name the song. I can tell you about the time and the place, but I can't name the song. That's fine. I love it. Anyway, the time and the place is good enough for me. What happened? I think, I mean, I sort of have to check the date, but it was, I think, in the the late 1950s, um, just after Fidel Castro came into power in Cuba, there were um, a, there was suddenly a flood of Cuban refugees who came to, to the United States. 
And I remember being very, you know, I guess, I don't know, I was about eight or nine years old. And, um, you know, having a, a winter holiday in Miami Beach with my parents. And suddenly these Cuban musicians, these itinerant Cuban musicians appeared on the beach and began playing. And I have always, ever since that time, I have always loved what you could loosely describe as Latino music. You know, the rhythms, the orchestration, the way they sing, the style of singing is so fabulous. So I would say listening to these itinerant Cuban musicians on the beach in Miami as an eight or nine-year-old was a pretty pretty formative experience. Have you been to Cuba? No, you know something? I long to go. There's one of the places that I... I'm just so keen to go to, but I haven't been yet. My kids have been, or one of my daughters has been, rather. Um, so many of my friends have been. I really want to go there, but I haven't, haven't been there yet. You should absolutely go because there's music on every corner, music on every corner. The only the only thing that lets yeah. it, down, it down, and I feel terribly bad because obviously it's due to a whole myriad of political reasons, is the food. You know, you can't <laughs> yeah, really complain that. when everyone, yeah. you know, is close to starvation at various points, but the food does let it down. Maybe that's what I'm waiting for, the food to improve. <laughs> Thank you, Lloyds. That was a really interesting conversation and I hope the listeners enjoyed every moment like I did. Next week, we have multi-million copy selling author Justin Somper talking about Australia and much more. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.